So uh, just by show of hands, how many of you guys were ever the new kid in school? You had the experience of being the new kid. That's most of you at one time or another. For those of you who weren't the new kid, do you remember your freshman year walking into a high school lunchroom? Anybody have that? For, for me, the lunchroom was the scariest thing in the world whenever I would move to a new school um, or whenever I would transfer into a new school because if you're used to having like an established group of friends and you find yourself in a new environment and you walk into a big open room with all these tables and you look around, where do I sit? Do I, do I be the guy that's like off sitting by himself looking like a loser? Do I, do I make the bold decision to just walk up to an established group of people and sit down? Anybody else ever been there? A few of us? Um, what's really great is, is whenever you finally get accepted into a group, if you're used to that. For me, we were like the, uh, I was talking to Eric earlier this week, we were the island of misfit toys, right? All the kids in school that didn't fit in with any other groups, that couldn't find their places at other tables, sat at our table. And so there were like band geeks and like the kid with the leather jacket who rode his motorcycle to school every day, right? Like the one biker, you know, sitting right next to the band geek. But we didn't have anybody else. And so that was us. That was our, that was our group. And very quickly, um, there developed around our lunch table this sense of like identity, right? This is us. Like we knew we were misfits, but we owned it and we were proud of it. And whenever somebody in our group got made fun of, you know, for being the, the awkward band geek, and whenever I say awkward band geek, I want to I point out, this is like the band geek that was rejected by the other band geeks. And so, not just, not just, because some of you were like in band, and like, I was a band geek, what are you saying? I'm, no, I'm saying like the awkward band geek, okay? It's like, he'd get made fun of. And the rest of us would be like, you don't make fun of our friend, Right? Because he's one of us. He's our friend. And you don't let other people mess with your friends. Uh, the reason I bring up this illustration is because I, I think it highlights the world we live in. Um, there's us, right? And then there's them. The nebulous them. There's my people, my family, my friends, my group. And then there's them. The people who are against us. Um, the reason I state that vaguely is because for a lot of us, we, we, we're in different groups, right? And so some of you may think, well, I'm politically on this side, and somebody over here is against my politics. It's us versus them on the political scale, right? We've got some hunters in the room, and I've had conversations with some of you about, like, gun rights. And you're like, out of my cold, dead hands, right? You're not taking my guns. You know, there's us. They're the people that, you know, interpret the Constitution correctly, right? And then there's them. And, you know, if I had a conversation with people that were for more restrictions on guns, they'd be like, oh, you know, they'd have their own story. Like, that is the world we live in, us versus them on a thousand different topics. And as I read this passage this week, the one that we just read from 1 Thessalonians, we almost immediately run into, like, us-them language. Did any of you detect that? Like, as Paul started speaking about the Thessalonian church, 
he had good things to say, but then towards the last half of the passage, he's talking about someone else, and his language changes. Um, and so as I read this passage, it struck me that, um, that we really get a window through this passage into what does us versus them look like in the church. Like if we live in a world of us versus them, how do we as Christians think about that concept? You following me? And so that's what we're going to talk about today from these scriptures. We're going to take a look at us versus them and, uh, and kind of what, what the Bible might say about that. All right, so we're going to start off with talking about us. So what makes us, us, as a church? Like the people in this room that would say, I am a Christian, I'm a part of the church, what is it that makes us, us? I think we're going to see two things um, that in this passage that makes us, us. The first one is a common origin, that as Christians, as a church, each of us have a common origin. Um, verse 13 is going to come back up on the screen, and we'll read it again. Paul says this, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of, of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so Paul is thinking back, he's remembering uh, the Thessalonians and who they are and what they've, what they've become, and it says he's thanking God constantly. So whenever he thinks about the Thessalonians, whenever he prays for the Thessalonians, one thing keeps coming back in his mind over and over. Every time that he thinks about them, he remembers this, that they received the word of God. Now, if you remember um, from previous weeks, we've talked about how Paul was in Thessalonica only a few short weeks before he was run out of town um, by rioters. Um, but while he was in the city, he went into the Jewish synagogue. It was attended by both Jews and some Greeks. And he reasoned with them from the scriptures to, to tell them about who Jesus was. So he went in as a preacher, preaching the gospel, the good news of who Jesus was. He did that from the scriptures, and it says they received it. Um, whenever it says they received the word of God, let's note that they didn't just hear it and believe it, right? There's a difference between hearing news and, like, receiving news. So if I hear something, I may know it to be true, but if I receive something, it, it changes me in some way. Like, I, I take action based on what I've heard, Right? Do you understand what I'm saying? So if I receive a truth, it's not just going in my head so I have another piece of content. It's hitting my heart. I've heard and obeyed. And so they heard the word of God, and they obeyed the word of God. And it goes, he goes on to say that um, they accepted it not as the word of men. Um. Any of you here like good advice givers? Like people come to you with their problems and they're like, 
my car, it's making this funny noise. And you're like, oh, well, tell me about the noise. Let me diagnose it for you, you know? Any good advice givers? I don't know what to do. My wife is driving me crazy. Oh, let me give you some practical advice on how to drive your wife crazy in return, right? Um, it's, it's often good to get good advice, right? Good advice is exactly that, good advice. We can go to each other for wisdom, um, but oftentimes the wisdom we have to give is limited in its ability, right? So a friend comes to you and says, you know, I'm struggling um, with my faith. I'm struggling with uh, something that I'm doing. You know, I, I can't seem to keep my finances in order. You can give them advice on good practices, right? This is how you keep your finances in order. But it's limited because you're, you give advice out of who you are. You might not know everything that they're going through. You might not have infinite wisdom through all situations. And so your advice might be good, but it's not necessarily perfect. And the Thessalonians recognized that whenever Paul and his companions came into town and preached, that they didn't just come in with good advice. You know, hey, Thessalonians, your life would be better if you lived in this way, right? If you just cut dairy out of your diet, you know, you'd feel better. I say that knowing that some of you are lactose intolerant and literally can't have dairy, right? It's, they recognized it wasn't just good advice. Um, it wasn't just the word of men, but it was what? It was the word of God. That's right. It means that it was divine, that it was perfect, um, that it was powerful. So whenever Paul and his companions taught, they didn't just teach good ideas. They taught something life-changing. They taught the word of God. I'm going to read a passage that we've actually referenced back to several times over the last few months. Out of 2 Timothy chapter 3 should come up on the screen. It says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In this passage, Paul, in, in this place, writing a letter to Timothy, um, who is one of his helpers, makes the clear declaration that Scripture, the written Word of God, is breathed out by God. It's divine. It comes from Him. Um, if you recall the, um, the creation story that we often repeat over and over, there's the image of God making man and woman. So he, he creates Adam and Eve. In the image of this, he, he forms out of dirt the shape of a man, and then he gets down on his hands and knees, and he breathes air into the man's lungs, and he becomes a human being. 
And so there's this image of dust, you know, like, like we say at the funeral, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, that men are nothing but matter until God breathes into them. And that which is dead becomes alive. Whenever Paul says, you received the word of God, not as good advice, but as truly the word of God, the image that we have from Scripture is, is that a, like a wind of life through the preaching of the word, through the teaching of the Scripture, like blew into the Thessalonians and changed them. We know that this isn't just mere kind of mental assent to new facts. Like the Thessalonians just didn't believe new things about some invisible man in the sky. We know that it was a powerful reception of something that was life-changing um, out of what we see next. At the end of verse 13, it says that this word of God is at work. It's at work in you believers. And so not only have they received the word of God, have they obeyed it, has it begun to breathe new life in them, but it was constantly at work in them. So Paul was saying that even now, even though I'm not there to teach you, even though you're hundreds and hundreds of miles away, the word of God that you received is right now working in you. Hear this out of Hebrews chapter 4. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is the truth. Whenever God created man, whenever he first breathed life into us, he made us good. And not just good, the Bible says that he stood back, he looked at man, and he said, this is very good. So we were created good, but shortly after that, we fell into sin. That's where we have the story of Adam and Eve rejecting God, um, pursuing knowledge and power of their own accord instead of in and with and through him. They reject him, they turn towards themselves, and they fall. So we as human beings were created good, but we're fallen, and that means that we're a mixed bag, right? So you'll hear some people say, that people are inherently good, right? They'll talk about their worldview, and they'll see, I believe people are basically good, that they want peace and that they want to prosper. You guys ever, ever hear that? And then there are some people that will say, I believe that people are inherently evil. They're just waiting for the opportunity to take everything that they can get. And so, you know, on one side, someone says, I believe people are inherently good. See Gandhi. The other person says, I believe people are inherently bad. See Hitler, right? And those are two opposing views. The truth is that we're both. We were made good in the image of God, but we're marred by the fall. 
to the point that what should be good and beautiful is often twisted into something ugly. You following me on this? We're a mixed bag. In James, it talks about our tongue, and it says, with the same tongue we praise God, and we also curse men who are made in his image. And so if the Thessalonians, each and every one of them, were a mixed bag, made in God's image, but sinfully fallen, the picture is of new life being breathed into them. And then here, with the word of God being sharper than any two-edged sword, the the image is of, of God using the word to cut out the corruption that's in them. And so whenever we become Christians, we talked about a common origin. How are we, you know, how, how does us become us? We start out sinners. We recognize who Christ is, that we, that we live under condemnation, but because he loves us so much, he sacrificed himself for us so that we don't have to completely go through condemnation. We hear that truth. The word of life is breathed into us. Our, our soul is regenerated, made alive again. And then down through the years, as we continue to turn back to the word over and over, God takes it and uses it like a scalpel, cuts out the remnants of death that are in us. And over time, we grow to be more and more and more like him. This is the gospel that even though we deserve condemnation for those who believe, for those who just cry out for help, God doesn't condemn them. Rather, he heals them. And he uses his word to do it. And so notice in, these, in, this, in this scripture that the us, that the common origin is not defined by ethnic background. Like there's no black, white, Native American, Greek, Jew. There's no ethnic origin for what makes us, us. There's no personality, right? Night people only, morning people only. Um, You know, type A versus type B. There's no common personality. There's no common occupation. This isn't like a trade union where it's carpenters unite, right? This isn't like that. This isn't like social class where it's only the poor or only the rich or only the merchants. I could go on and on. The definition of who we are is not based upon all the thousands of things that we could identify outwardly. What makes us us, first off, is our common origin that God has regenerated us. Through the work of his word. He's healing us through the work of his word. What makes us us is not just our common origin. We also see that we share in a common suffering. So bear with me as we go through verse 14. It says this. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And so this verse starts off with the word for. It's a very short connecting verb, uh, I'm sorry, a connecting word that shows that the traits that we see here flow out of the work of God that came in the previous verse. So God is at working in you 
And we can recognize that, we can see that through the fact that you're suffering in the same kind of ways um, that the Christians in other parts of the world are suffering. And so they were united not just through a common origin, but also through a common suffering. It says, brothers, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Um, Imitation has been an ongoing theme, right? As we came through the first chapter, Paul says over and over, you were imitators of me, you were imitators of Christ, others are becoming imitators of you. And we see that through imitation, um, we're knit together, united. And they imitated by suffering. I'm going to read another verse. This one's out of John. This is hard sometimes for uh, Christians in our country to hear because we don't have very many scars. We don't, whenever we talk about suffering, like let's recognize they were going through a different kind of suffering than often Christians in our country at our time claim. But let's read this in John 15. It says, if the world hates you, this is Jesus speaking, It says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Christians suffer together with Jesus. Like he suffered, and if he suffered, we will suffer. It shouldn't surprise us when we hear stories of churches in Egypt being blown up on holidays. It shouldn't surprise us if um, we hear about brothers and sisters who live um, in, Pal- in Palestine, modern-day Palestine, having their homes bulldozed right alongside you know, Muslims. It shouldn't surprise us when we hear about Christians in Chinese house churches being rounded up and thrown into prison for not practicing their faith in a way that's deemed acceptable by the government. It shouldn't surprise us. Um, it shouldn't surprise us whenever our own society starts looking at Christians saying, if you won't operate the way we want you to operate, then you don't get to have that business anymore. It it shouldn't surprise us. Um, In the first century, Christianity was something that was new. And the way that, um, that the kind of the world fought against Christianity was by treating it like something that was new. So if you've, you know, got a garden and a weed starts to grow up in your garden, you get it right away before it has time to spread. And so the Christians at this time were, were coming alive in Christ and um, the world that rejected Christ said, we're going to crush you before you have a chance to spread. And so there was real persecution harsh persecution. 
And even though the world persecuted the church, what happened? It grew and it grew and it grew because the power of Christ can't be crushed by the world. And eventually, um, a Christian worldview, or at least an expressed, if not even, maybe not real, but at least an expressed Christian worldview, became what was normal, right? How you destroy an institution is completely different. It's not small, you can't crush it with one swift blow. Rather, you've got to chip away at it. What I'm trying to illustrate is that our faith today, in our context, persecution looks different. Um, the church has been chipped at for the last 300 years. Chip, 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 chip. And little by little, slowly but surely, it's eroded. Um, to the place that our faith is no longer the dominant worldview in our country. Even people who say that they're Christians, if you do a survey and you look for classic, you know, like Christian ideas and thoughts, like do you believe Jesus was a real person? Do miracles exist? I'm talking about basic stuff. If you do a survey of people who claim to be Christian, a bunch of them will just check no on those basic things. Our faith has been chipped away. And so the persecution that we experience is no longer, not right now at least, the crushing blow of we hate you, we're going to throw you in prison. It's the slow boil of, of like social pressure that we're going to make you feel stupid for holding to your faith. We're going to make it to where you don't speak up when you're in public about who Christ is. The persecution looks different here. Um, but be thankful that we're not in the Middle East because it still looks violent in other parts of the world. Regardless of what our suffering looks like, um, this is, this is how we're often united with brothers and sisters around the world. It's through suffering. And just as a small aside, that's why it's so heinous whenever we see brothers and sisters suffer and we choose um, our ethnic or our class or our social groups instead of them. You get what I'm saying with that? Christians are united with other Christians regardless of those things. And we should pray for and love our brothers and sisters that are, being so, that are in harsher contexts. All right, so we've talked about us. Let's talk about them. This part's shorter. What makes them them? Who's the them in this passage that we see? Um, we see, again, two things that unite those um, who are recognized as the, the, the opposition in these verses. And the first one is a common rejection of the faith. And so if on the us side there's a common reception of the word, on this side there's a common rejection. Let's read verse 15 through the first part of verse 16. It says this, 
Um, now he's speaking, he's speaking specifically about the Jews in Judea who rejected um, the kind of the start of the church. And he says this, They killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and they drove us out, and they displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. And so Paul starts his description of the Jews by saying they're the ones who killed Jesus and the prophets. So let's just stop for a moment and recognize that Jesus came 400 years before the previously recognized prophet, right? Like there was a gap between what we generally think of as the prophets and, of, um, and Jesus whenever he came. And so whenever it says the Jews um, killed Jesus and the prophets, notice that he's, he's got something big in scope. Basically, his idea is, is that the people of God, of which he was a part, because this is Paul, like he was a part of killing Christians early on before he became a Christian. He says, we as a people have had a habit of rejecting God's messengers. And whenever God himself showed up in the flesh, we rejected him too. And the religious leaders who rejected Jesus and the prophets also continued to reject Paul. It was the Jewish populations in, and in Thessalonica and in Philippi earlier that had caused riots and driven Paul out. And so he says, at this time, as a people, those that were not becoming Christian were rejecting Christianity violently. They weren't just saying, we don't believe, we reject your God. They were literally trying to get Christians killed. In the end, it says that they, in doing so, are filling up the measure of their sins. The picture here is, is that it wasn't enough that they have their own way. It wasn't enough that they were the dominant religion in like their region or in their city. Um, they they had to completely crush the opposition. So if they sinned in their rejection of the gospel by looking at a God who is holding out his hands in mercy to them and saying, we don't want that, if that was a sin, they were just heaping it on by killing the Christians who did receive. So they have a common rejection of the truth. And they're also united in a common end. This is the last part of verse 16. It says this, But wrath has come upon them at last. There's some um, discussion about how we should best interpret this particular sentence. Paul describes the sin of this group of Jews, and by extension, the, uh, the countrymen that are in the area around Thessalonica. So not just the Jews, but, but those that are persecuting the Thessalonians, the non-Jews. And um, he says, wrath has come upon them at last. What does he mean? Um, some people believe um, that he literally um, was talking about a current persecution that was kind of building against Jews as a people. 
Um, around the time this was written, um, Rome made some decrees against the Jews. At one point, all, every Jewish person who lived in Rome was kicked out of Rome, you know, into the surrounding countryside and the surrounding cities. They weren't allowed to live within the capital city. Um, they had a history of rebellion against the Roman Empire, and so there was a constant clash. And so some people believe whenever Paul is saying wrath has come upon them at last, that he's actually talking about a literal wave of persecution from the Romans against the Jews. And that's possible. What makes that interpretation doubtful is the fact that Christians um, were recognized as Jews by Rome as well. And so Rome didn't distinguish. Like you were either, you know, if you were Jewish, okay, whatever, you have the Torah, you read the, the, the Jewish scriptures. If you were a Christian, you also tended to act similar ways. And so whenever the Jews were persecuted, a lot of times the Christians were caught in the crossfire. And so if Paul is saying, wrath has come upon them at last, and he's talking about the literal persecution, it seems odd as that persecution also harmed Christians as well. The second option is that Paul isn't literally talking about a wrath that has like is destroying the Jews now, but is talking about a wrath that hangs over them for their rejection. Um, so this would be the idea that God has already pronounced judgment against this group of people that had rejected him and were now seeking the death of those who followed him. In any case, Christians nowhere in the scripture are ever called upon to attack. Whatever God's wrath towards this group of people was, it wasn't like Christians with swords, you know, fighting back. Judgment comes from God, not from violent Christians. So this raises a couple of questions. We've kind of seen the us, now we've seen the them, and it raises some questions. Um, the first one is this. You may be thinking this. So is everyone who is not a Christian, like an enemy, are they the them? You know, if we're talking about there's an us and there's a them in this passage, is it, does it mean if you're not a Christian, you're automatically a part of the them? Um, in a word, no. That's not what that means. Um, it's important whenever we come across a passage of Scripture that is confusing, hard to understand, or seems to say something that we're not sure seems in line with the overall narrative of the Scripture, um, to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So we turn to a different passage and we see what it says. I want you to hear these words out of Matthew. This is Jesus during his ministry. Um, Matthew chapter 9, it says, And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord for the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. Like in the eyes of Jesus, this mass of people who didn't know him, who hadn't heard of him, who didn't believe in him, were not 
enemies to be attacked or conquered. He saw them as people who were harassed and helpless. Like, they were dead in their own sins and didn't know it. And so whenever Jesus looked out at these people in their ignorance, he didn't see them as enemies, but as people to take mercy to. And even if you do view them as enemies, we know elsewhere, what does Christ say to do for your enemies? To love them, to bless them. So there are some out there that do not believe, that aren't to be viewed as an enemy, to be feared, or to be driven away, or to, be run, or to run away from, but are to be given mercy. The second question that often comes up out of this passage is, does it support um, anti-Semitism? Paul says some harsh things against the Jews. That's why I put it in scare quotes earlier. So does this support anti-Semitism? In a word, again, no. Um, it's an example of the attitude of God towards all who directly oppose him, who shout in his face, I hate you, I want nothing to do with you, and I want to stop others from loving you. The focus isn't on the ethnic um, group, it's on the attitude towards God. And also, just simply, like, Paul was Jewish, Jesus was ethnically Jewish. Um, almost all of the early church was ethnically Jewish. Until Paul started his missionary journey, there was no great number of Gentiles in the church. To look at Paul and say, this is evidence that we can hate the Jews, as some horrific people have done through the ages, is, is just stupid. I don't know what else to say about that. Paul's word are, our words are not against ethnicity. Um, he's speaking against envious, hypocritical religious zealots who violently oppose the faith. Does that make sense? So no anti-Semitism in these passages. Again, we interpret the scripture with scripture. This is the last um, scripture that I'm going to read, and then we'll speak just briefly on application. This shows Paul's heart towards the Jews. He says this in Romans 9, verse 2. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Do these sound like the words of an anti-Semite, of someone who hates people. He painfully wishes that they would come to Christ. So here's a word of application for us. The first one is this. Seek to be saturated by the word of God. Like if we, if we receive the word, if we believe that it is powerful and that it is life-giving and that it can carve out all the pieces of corruption that are in us, then we should seek to be saturated by it, Right? If it's the word of God that's going to make a difference in who we are for the rest of eternity, then we should probably seek it out. That means, uh, that means sitting under the teaching of the word in, in like a sermon type concept like this. 
It means whenever you get opportunity, opening your Bible at home and going through it. It means going through the Bible in, in your small groups as a part of the church and in your fight clubs. If the Word is what makes a difference, then we must be saturated by it. And if you struggle with hearing or reading, then pray that God would give you a heart to seek out the Scriptures and what they would teach you. That's one point. The second point of application is this. If we are indeed an extended family that's not based on ethnicity or nationality or any of those other markers, then we need to remember those that don't look like us and don't sound like us, that live far away but are still a part of our family. Right? We weep with those who weep and we pray for them. Remember Christians who are suffering worse than us around the world weekly in your prayers, daily in your prayers. And this is the third thing. Um, we as a people need to yearn for them, whoever them are, to be a part of us. Like we don't wallow in the fact that destruction and judgment is coming into the world. Like we exist as people who have fled from the judgment that we ourselves deserve. Like we're sinners and we shouldn't look at other people and celebrate when disaster comes down on them. We should yearn for the people who fight against Christ to fall in love with him. And so we should pray for them. We should reach out to them. We should be willing to suffer at their hands if only to have the opportunity to tell them about who Christ is one more time. So let's seek to be saturated by the word. Let's remember our extended Christian family and let's pray for all those who are outside the family to be welcomed in, to join with us and join with Christ. If you'd pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word.